passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We've begun the story, which Peter, who is either dictating to Mark or whose teaching inspired the gospel of Mark, according to church tradition, let us know that this is all the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've moved past the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus, and we saw Jesus baptized, tempted in the wilderness, and then return home. We spent some time last week discussing theological matters about who Jesus was, his identity, his ministry, and so on. Well, now we're going to see what he does. And we find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've got a a map here for you to see where this is. The Sea of Galilee is also called in the Bible the Lake of Gennesaret. Sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias. In the Old Testament, you'll see it referred to occasionally as the Sea of Kinneret. And this was not a large, well, still is, not a large body of water. It's more of what we call a lake, but it's called the sea in in this book. And Galilee was the region north of Samaria and Judea. So the land of Israel had been divided into regions by the Roman Empire. The southernmost region, which included the city of Jerusalem, is called Judea. The region above that was what was called Samaria. And then above that, you have what is called Galilee. And as we know from both Old and New Testaments, Galilee was considered to be a rural backwater part of the land of Israel. And Jesus and his disciples will be ridiculed and and not taken seriously, dismissed because they're from Galilee. They're even going to mention at one point that Peter has a Galilean accent, and that's how they knew he was following Jesus. Jesus himself is very often referred to in the literature surrounding this time as simply the Galilean, that he was so identified with this region that that's how he became known. And we meet these four men, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And we see them in pairs fishing in their boats. It says that Simon and Andrew were casting. Uh, These nets would have been about 15 feet in diameter, and they would have weights on the edges. They would cast them out. They would spin like this, land on the water, and then sink down. And the the rocks would weigh it down. It would gather some fish in it, and then they would pull the rope and pull it tight, and they would catch fish that way. So that's what they were doing. And then we see James and John. Now, we know from Luke chapter 5, verse 10, that Peter, Simon's name was also Peter, as you may know, Simon and Andrew, James and John were partners with each other. They were fishermen together, and therefore, that means that Zebedee, the father of James and John, who seems to have been the one that owned this whole operation, was likely the proprietor, shall we say, uh, in charge of all this. They had hired servants. This was a rather successful operation, apparently, and they worked together. We also know from John chapter 1, if you read, that they had encountered Jesus before. Remember, Mark doesn't give us as much detail as the other Gospels do. He just jumps right into the story, right into where, as far as Peter, who was probably uh, inspiring this book, or his story began. We know that Andrew, for example, had been a disciple of John the Baptist and had followed him, and that when John the Baptist said, this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, as John said, that Andrew began to follow him and brought Peter along, and then, of course, Nathaniel and others as well. So this story condenses. This gets right to the point where they were called to follow Jesus full time. And Jesus says that they're going to become fishers of men. I will make you become. It's, it's describing a process there. I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, this is actually an Old Testament reference, and it's unclear how much Jesus is intending us to look back, but there is a verse in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, in the context of God describing the return of Israel from their exile, where he said, I'm going to bring you all back. He says in that, that verse, Jeremiah 16, 16, that I'm going to send out fishermen, and I'm going to send out hunters to find you wherever you are and bring you back. But immediately after that, it, it takes a concerning turn because he says, 
and their iniquity will not be hidden from me, and they will bear the cost of their iniquity before I restore them. So just as Jesus later on will compare the kingdom of heaven to a fisherman bringing in a haul of fish, and it was a process of sorting them and seeing who was a good fish and who was a bad fish, and this is all, all tied together. So obviously very much a positive reference here, but there is also that that darker side, if I may put it that way, that this mission that I'm going to send you on is not always going to be a happy one, but there's also going to be a, a, uh, an aspect to it of separation of men when they are face-to-face with the gospel. So we have Simon, whose name would later be called Peter. Jesus gave nicknames to a lot of his disciples. Just, you know, they were guys. That's what we do. We give each other nicknames, right? Simon Peter, Andrew, his brother. James. Now, if you look at the actual Greek language here, the word is not James. It's Jacob. Jacob is what his name would have been. It's also the book of James is Jacob. Have you ever read a Spanish Bible and it's called Santiago? Like, what does Santiago have to do with James, right? It's, you know, at least with Pedro is kind of like Peter, right? Marco is kind of like Mark. Where do you get Santiago? Well, Sant is like saint, right? So just Iago, like Iago doesn't sound like James, not even close. Well, it does sound an awful lot like Jacob, which is the word Jacob, right? So English does that, and uh, most people believe that goes back to the King James Bible, so I'm not going to say any more about that right there. But uh, John is the other one. John, who, of course, was uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He would live the longest, the only one not to be martyred. And it seems like he had a special friendship with Jesus. But when he calls these four, it says they immediately, Mark's favorite word, euthus, immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. Now, we know that there was some history from the Gospel of John and elsewhere between Jesus and these men. But you are expected to read this and be a little shocked that they would do this so rapidly. Really? He just walks up to you and says, hey, come follow me. Okay. You know, leaving uh, their father and the hired servants in the boats. And uh, there's actually, I remember when I was a kid, there was one adaptation of the story. And it was really good when they actually would just do word for word what the text was. And as then immediately leaving their father in the boat, the hired servants, they followed him. And it shows them get out and leave. And their dad is just kind of staring at them with this. I always have this in my mind of he's like, what are you doing, boys? You know, doesn't even have the time to say anything. So it, it would have been a little more. And we're actually going to see that James and John's mother is going to travel with them. So it's not like they're never going to see him again, but they're not working this job anymore. They left their nets immediately. Baptism, earlier in this chapter, prepared us for this. John's baptism prepared us for this. Because what is baptism a picture of? Maybe when you were baptized, they said this little formula, which is not from the Bible, but it's great. It says, buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. That's where it begins. Baptism is the beginning, so to speak, of your Christian life, right? That you die to the old man and you're raised up to walk in a new life after Jesus. This is where the Christian life begins. This is also where we get the description that we so often use of following Jesus. We say this a lot, like, well, are you following Jesus? Are you walking with the Lord? Now, we know what that means. It means to be a Christian, right? But it comes from those first disciples that were Christians were literally following Jesus, literally walking with him. And that image would be carried through to the rest of Scripture. And this is what they did to give up everything for Jesus. The first step to being a Christian is to give up everything. I know this is not common. I know this is not commonly said or understood, but this is exactly where it starts to give up everything for the sake of Christ so that we can be totally transformed. To go from being a fisherman to a fisher of men, there has to be a break that happens in the middle to leave everything. Jesus himself said it, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25. He said, if anyone would come after me, there it is again, following after, right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't it amazing that every other religion and every other idea markets itself as a way to find yourself, to discover yourself, to find who you really are. Do you know that the Christian faith does the exact opposite of that? The first thing that has to happen is the death of yourself. 
You can put that in those psychological terms, if you like, with the capital S. The capital S self, that's who you really are. Yes, and Jesus said it has to die. It has to be crucified on a cross. That's where it starts, to give up everything. Death is the first step because we are so full of sin that the old life weighs us down. And there are not many positive examples of people who tried to follow Jesus and yet continue doing the same things they were doing before. To live the same way, to have the same ambitions and the same dreams and the same hopes. There are some unfortunate pastors that try to market Christianity as your best way to accomplish everything you've ever wanted to accomplish. That can happen. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But that must never be understood as the goal. The first thing that happens is death. To leave it all behind. But for what purpose? For the promise of rebirth and resurrection. That's what's so wonderful. These men are going to go from fishermen to fishers of men. You look at these guys. They were out there catching fish, which is fine. Nothing wrong with being a fisherman. Some of us have maybe thought about running away and just being a fisherman for the rest of my life. You know, I'll just catch fish and live off of that. Maybe you ladies haven't had that dream, but maybe your husbands have. But you know, he says, I've got something better for you. You're constantly going out, reaching down into the depths and trying to pull something out. I want you to do that for me into the depths of humanity, the depths of men's souls, and draw out those who are going to be saved. Isn't that better? Aren't I taking the things that you're already good at and restoring them for something greater? That's what it means. You look at Paul. What was Paul before he was saved? He was a rabbi a teacher of the law, a teacher of God's word. He was zealously devoted to the truth of God as he understood it. And he was willing to leave his country to go and accomplish those things. I'll go to Damascus to bring those renegade Christians home. But when he had an encounter with God, he says he counted all of that as loss. He took everything and brought it over to the loss column. He says, PNL, what do I have? Nothing so that I can gain Christ. And then what happened? Paul became an apostle, a teacher of the word of God, totally devoted to the truth about God and willing to leave his country to go out and spread the word. Except now he's not bringing death, he's out bringing life. That's what Jesus wants to do. When you consider the worth of what Jesus offers us, it doesn't really bear thinking about the cost. Although the devil will convince us that there are some things that are just too much to give. And the Christian life, unfortunately, is a matter of walking down the road and watching those around you find the thing that they won't give up for the sake of Christ and then depart from the narrow path. But it starts with leaving everything. We desire that transformation, but it must first come at the cost of our own lives, our own souls. Verse 21, this is going to continue. This is all going to build on itself. These men left and they went into Capernaum, Capernaum. <laughs> and immediately, another word, another youthus there, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, literally there it could be, Be muzzled, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing or tearing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So he calls his disciples and they go to this place called Capernaum. This is Aramaic and it means the village of Nahum. And the word Nahum means comfort. So whether this was a village intended to honor the prophet Nahum or another famous Nahum, or if it literally was just called Comfortville, that's what it could have meant. Which is, of course, rather beautiful because Isaiah chapter 40, which is the passage that starts talking about the voice crying out in the wilderness and the coming of the Messiah, begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people. John 1.44 tells us that Andrew and Peter's hometown was Bethsaida, and so apparently they had moved to Capernaum because Peter's house is here. Probably he moved for business, or as we're going to see, maybe he moved for the sake of his family. 
But Jesus begins to teach in the synagogue. Did you know that the oldest extant records of synagogue services are the ones found in the New Testament? These are the primary sources of what synagogue life was like at this time because the New Testament describes them. And he begins to preach. But it says that people were astonished, and the word there is for struck. We still talk like that, right? I was struck. It's like somebody slapped me across the face the way Jesus was preaching. Why? Because he was preaching with authority. It means Jesus was not footnoting his teaching. He wasn't showing up and citing sources. Was he plagiarizing? No, he was prophesying. He was stepping up and speaking. What, you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. What does it say over and over again? You have heard that it was said, but I say. That was outrageous to these people. You can't say that. That's not what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other teachers do. They come in. If I ask them a question, they say, well, as Rabbi so-and-so says, and as this, this tradition has it, and as this verse says, Jesus just comes in and says, here's what I say. And apparently it was intense of a change enough for them that they were struck during this teaching. But I say to you, they're going to mock Jesus for this later, do you remember? When they will uh, say, we've heard that we should do such and such. But what do you say? They're mocking Jesus, right? Here's what Moses said. What do you say, Jesus? Now, you might wonder, if you don't know your, the story here, why would you follow a man who shows up on the side of the, of the lake and says, hey, come follow me? Why would you follow a guy like that? Who then shows up at church and then starts talking like he owns the place? I generally would warn you away from people like that. Well, Mark demonstrates for us that there was in this place a man who had a spirit of uncleanness. This is a way that the writers will describe what a demon was. Mark will use those terms interchangeably, but by calling it an unclean spirit, that calls us back to the Old Testament where uncleanness is something that would separate you from the Lord. It was something that would defile you. He has a demon who had possessed this man. This man had given way to a demonic spirit so much that the thing had taken over his personality and even his voice and cries out in fear. So imagine that you're sitting, this man is preaching, and you're listening like, this guy, is he allowed to say that? Is he allowed to preach like this? And all of a sudden, and, and if I could have one question from the Bible answered, probably wouldn't be this one, but in any case, if I was allowed a lot of questions, <laughs> one of them would be, did they know this guy was possessed? Or was this, you know, everyone kind of knew, okay, this is, you know, that's, that's Bobby, and he's got a demon, but, you know, sometimes he'll let us bring him to synagogue. Or was it that this thing manifested when Jesus walked in the room? This thing cried. But imagine being, you've got to put yourself in the picture. You're sitting there listening to Jesus teach. They would have sat kind of in the round based on what we know of the architecture of the time. And Jesus is preaching. They're whispering to each other. And all of a sudden, this guy stands up and it says, cried out with a great cry. Just imagine someone standing up right. Ah! All of a sudden, nobody's paying attention to Jesus anymore. And what does he say? He uses an idiom from the time here. He says, what to us and to you, Jesus the Nazarene? He's saying, what do we have in common that you would come here? This is one of the great mysteries of the New Testament, that the, the angelic, or shall we say demonic forces, did not realize who Jesus was. It also is interesting to us that while Jesus had been tempted by the devil in the wilderness, when he comes to Capernaum, apparently he's surprised this demon. So sometimes the devil likes to trick us into thinking he knows everything. He doesn't. But all of a sudden, this demon realizes that's, that's the Logos. That's the Son of God preaching. And what does he begin to do? Does he do like in a Hollywood movie where like, <laughs> no, he freaks out. Oh, no. Why are you here? Why would you come here? You, have you come to destroy us? Don't mess with me. I know who you are. Apparently, there was still some degree of mystery in the spirit that this thing was like, I, I know you're a man and you look just like a man, but I know who you are. And he begins to freak out and, and scream in the middle of the synagogue. And what is Jesus going to do? He casts him out with a mere word. Be silent and come out of him. Now, we have descriptions of what exorcisms were like at this time. We see an example of it in Acts chapter 19 with the sons of Sceva, where it doesn't go well for them, but it involved chance. 
It involved potions. It involved, in Jewish culture, a lot involved magic rings. They believed that Solomon had these rings where he would use, invoke the name of the Lord and his magic power, and he would draw the demon into his ring, and then he could make the demon do what he wanted by having the ring, which is very much like, uh, almost like the thousand and one nights, kind of that culture of what demons were, like a genie almost, living in the lamp, right? Same, same idea. But does Jesus do any of that? Just with a word. Be quiet and get out of him. And they are amazed. This thing, it says literally in the Greek there, it tore him. So he's convulsed, just being like ripped. Like a, Jesus told him to be muzzled. So it's almost like this, this bestial picture of this thing shaking this man, crying out, convulsing, and out goes the demon. And it says they were all astonished. But astonished at what? At his authority and his teaching. It was the teaching that impressed them. Because they're saying, How, who is this guy to talk like this? Oh, that's who he is. This is the kind of man that can command evil spirits and they obey. Maybe they were accustomed to this guy freaking out in the middle of synagogue. And they had people ready to escort him out of the building. But today, Jesus just handled it. The authority is what struck them. The teachings of Jesus carry the authority and power of heaven. And we know this. We've all seen this. Because while this passage absolutely applies and describes Jesus' power over the literal demonic, and we will spend some days as we go through this to talk about demons and angels and spiritual warfare and possession and all of that, but today I want to use it as an illustration of the power of God's word. Because if this was a spirit of uncleanness, most of us do not have, are not possessed by evil spirits of uncleanness. We invite uncleanness into our lives by our actions and by our sins. We defile ourselves. And the way to eradicate uncleanness from your life is to take heed to the authority of the words of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. If you're dealing with bitterness, and I am not one of those people that believes that every problem you have is because of some specific demon that's causing it. I don't think the Bible gives us warrant to say that. But if you're dealing with bitterness... How do you get rid of bitterness? How do you let go of something that is weighing you down? Maybe something that was done to you a long time ago. Maybe bitterness against a certain group of people or a specific individual or a church or an ex or whatever it is. How do you get rid of that bitterness? Love. Obeying Jesus' command to love your neighbor and love your enemies drives out bitterness. And you know what happens sometimes? Your flesh convulses and cries out with a loud voice. Isn't that the case? It's amazing. That what, you ask me, what's one thing that Jesus said? Well, well, judge not. And then maybe what? Love your enemies. But we still don't do that one. Love your enemies? Well, you don't understand. My enemies are different. No, they're not. Love your enemies. And if you start actively choosing to love somebody, bitterness is going to be driven out of your heart because there won't be room for it anymore. What did Jesus tell us? Not to swear. Do you ever wonder why Jesus told us not to swear? Because Jesus tells us that we should conduct our lives and our speech in such a way that you saying yes or no should be sufficient. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's why some people say, well, when I cuss, I'm not cursing, like I'm not calling a curse down on somebody. Sometimes you are. But they say, well, look, but I'm not, I'm not trying to swear by something. Say, well, what are you trying to do? You're trying to intensify your speech. Jesus told us you shouldn't talk that way. You should conduct yourself so forthrightly and so straightforwardly and so honestly that when you say no, people listen. And when you say yes, people take you seriously. If you have distrust in your heart and if that's the thing that is making your life unclean, that nobody believes you and nobody listens and you can't trust anybody else, you start walking in that forthrightness and you're going to watch that evil spirit, shall we say, to be driven out. In the same way, didn't Jesus tell us I'd rather you have the heart right than get the rituals right. Hypocrisy. That's a big issue. It was an issue then. Hypocritical people that say they want one thing or say they believe one thing and then go out and do the complete opposite. It's especially a problem in religious circles. People say, oh, it's what we believe about the Bible, but then you see them out on Friday night and it's like, really, you could have fooled me. But it's okay, I, I come to church. That's all right, so I'm all good now. Jesus tells us that you should, I'd rather you miss, later on, I'd rather you miss the, the time of the offering and make it right with somebody. I'd rather you quit 
you're you know, coming to, to worship and go out and make that right. Sincerity. If you're going to start living sincerely with people and take your religion seriously, then hypocrisy is not going to plague you anymore. Jesus tells us to take the initiative when it comes to doing right by people. <laughs> Who is my neighbor? Jesus goes, you've got it all wrong, friends. You're the neighbor to everybody. You are a walking neighborhood, friends. Everywhere you go, that's the person you're supposed to love. You're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan and take the initiative to show kindness. And if you're lazy in your life and in your obedience to the Lord, you start obeying that commandment, you're going to find that, that uncleanness dry up real fast. Same thing, compassion drives out hate. Instead of spending the time explaining why you're justified in your hatred for somebody else, you say, I'm going to start praying for the Lord to give me a heart of compassion for somebody. Self-sacrifice will drive selfishness out of your life. If you're dealing with sins and issues, you need to stop focusing so much on not doing. As important as that is, stop sinning, but start doing the right thing. Jesus says later that if you cast one demon out, he's going to go wander and then try to come back with seven buddies. But if you've not replaced that spot in your heart with something else, it's just going to come back worse. Now, I think he's literally talking about demons there, but you can use it as an illustration also. If you get rid of some wicked sin in your life, but you don't replace it with something righteous, it's just going to come back ten times worse. Jesus' words have authority. John 6, verses 66 through 69, Jesus gave his famous cannibal sermon. If you want to eat something so much, eat my flesh and drink my blood. After this, many of his disciples, his disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, Lord, I've seen who you are. You can say whatever you want, and I'll believe it. I'm not sitting here judging you. You're the Holy One of God. And the change that comes into a person's life proves the authority of God. Jesus will perform many miracles in the book of Mark, but all of these are to authenticate his authority as the Son of God. So as much as I love talking about miracles and healing, and we're going to do all that, I promise, you've got to remember that this all goes back to a reminder that Jesus has all authority. And if he has the authority to command evil spirits and to preach without citing his sources, that when he says, leave your nets and come follow me, you best get out of that boat. Verse 29, and immediately, see what I mean? Mark likes that word. <laughs> he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So after the synagogue, they go back to Peter's house where his mother-in-law is sick. In case you forgot or you didn't know, Peter was married. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul will refer to the fact that Peter would take his wife with him on his missionary journeys, and that this is one of the ways that Paul could do a little more than Peter because he didn't have to attend to the needs of his wife, which is why it's very interesting to me that, well, both the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions both prohibit the, the Pope or the Patriarch or, or any of these bishops from marrying because Peter was married. <laughs> it's like, well, was he special? I don't know, but it's, uh, it's just a little silly, I think. But he sees this, this woman who's sick. I wonder if it's sad that, hey, you know, you helped, uh, you know, old Bobby at the, whatever his name, I don't know why I'm picking on Bobby, but um, <laughs> you helped out Bobby at the synagogue today. What about my, my mother-in-law? She's sick. She got a fever. Apparently it was bad enough that they were worried. And it says, Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her up. And she was healed and immediately began to serve them. That's the word diakone. It's where we get words like deacon from. She was serving them. She was a good woman. She was like, there's, there's guests in my house, and one of them just healed me. They need something to eat. You know, it's funny. Every culture thinks that, well, our moms just love to cook and feed. That's everybody, man. That's across the world. It's like there's, there's guests in the house, and they haven't had anything to eat. You're going to get a pop in the back of the head and say, why not? So she's going to start serving them. When you invite Jesus into your house, friends, everything begins to change. Things begin to get transformed. We face, as people, situations that seem hopeless and desperate. And you know, our congregation, for the last several weeks, feels like we've been kicked in the teeth. 
maybe not you personally, but there have been several stories of people that are going through just horrid things right now, ranging from financial difficulties to death of, of beloved spouses and, and everything in between. And we've had our issues with the building project that didn't come through. And sometimes you face these situations and it just, what are we supposed to do? Sickness, money, relationships, ministry, whatever it might be. What's the answer to these things? Sometimes there is no good answer. My dad tells me the story of, uh, he was an assistant pastor in California, and um, he was sent, there was a very large church, so you never quite knew what you were going to get when you were an assistant pastor, and he was sent to uh, talk to this person, and this woman, he was, I mean, probably 22 or 23 at the time, and this woman comes in who's dealing with this issue, and he's sitting there listening to this story go on and on, it just gets worse and worse, and at one point she pointed her finger at him and says, you don't even know what to say! That's like worst case scenario if you're counseling somebody, I'll tell you right now, especially when you're young and and it had a happy ending as he tells the story. But, you know, then when I was a young assistant pastor, I was always remembering that story. Where is he sending me? You know, but but the answer to the question is you invite Jesus into your house. You invite Jesus in the situation. You get God involved. This is what they did in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament because we have more stories from the Old Testament, I guess, but they would just get God involved. I don't know what to do, Lord. We need your help. Read the Psalms. David will say, Lord, I'm, I'm totally busted. There is no escape for me. All I can do is ask for your help. That's what inviting Jesus into your house is. This is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways, because when Jesus tells us, come leave all that you have and follow me, we can start to chafe against that command until your mother-in-law is sick with a fever, until that money needs to come in this week or we're in big trouble or whatever it might be. You submit to his authority and begin to follow because submitting to Jesus' authority is not just bringing your actions and your morality under his authority. That's part of it. It's an inextricable part of it. But it also means you are bringing your life under the protection of Almighty God. And those to whom you introduce him will be changed forever. Luke chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. This is the, we're going to learn about him when we get to it in the book of Mark, but I'll read from Luke. This is the man who had been living in the tombs, filled with a legion of demons. They couldn't even chain this guy up. It would break the chains and run. Well, Jesus cast the demons out of him. And it says in Luke 8, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And the next time Jesus visited that place, they were ready for him. They were excited to see him because this man had been doing his work, testifying of what God has done. There's no one else who can heal the mind or the body or the soul like Jesus. His word has power. When Jesus says, be silent, things must be silent. When things must live and Jesus says, live, they live. When Jesus says, go, you must go. When Jesus says to the mountain, move, the mountain must move. So we invite him in by obeying his word, first of all, by doing what he says. But also by submitting to him personally. This is where some of us can miss it. You can think that Jesus does indeed have a lot of good things to say. And I think it's probably the best way to live life. And the greatest culture in the world was built on these foundational morals. And that's wonderful. That's only part of it, though. Jesus said, you can search the scriptures because you think that you have life in them. But these are they which testify of me. But you won't come to me that I might heal you. Isaiah 64, we sang a song that is derived from that psalm tonight, or that, that passage of scripture, where he says, Lord... Would you rend the heavens and come down? We need your help. And the Lord goes, I was willing, and you wouldn't come. It's not just about agreeing with Jesus' words about life. How are you going to disagree with them? Love your neighbor. Who's, gonna, who's the jerk that's going to say, I don't think we should love our neighbors? <laughs> Probably the neighbor that you need to start loving, I would say. Some of you might think, I have a neighbor like that. How would you know? But it's about submitting to Jesus personally, having an encounter with Christ, letting him touch you. That's such a big thing. We're going to see this next time as we get into the story of the leper. But Jesus went around touching people. 
that no one else wanted to touch. And guess what? There are things in our lives that we don't want Jesus to touch. Your life is a house? Come on in, Jesus. Oh, what's in here? Oh, don't go in there. That's private. Why? What's, what's private about it? Well, just it's, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my past. That's my feelings for this person. That's, the, that's just, you know, those are my little vices that, you know, I just don't want to give up. And, well, I need to go in every room of your house. Can't go in there. Then it's going to continue to fester and cause problems. When I worked at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we dealt with hoarders all the time. I was, one guy asked one time, I said, so where, what's your day been like, man? And I was like, well, I actually just came from a hoarder's house. He goes, what? And I'm explaining it to him. He was a really nice guy, but he lived, you know, uh, down towards Homewood in a really nice house. And he's like, well, don't they have, like, people to clean those out? I'm like, yeah, you're looking at them, pal. What? I'm like, yeah, I'm the guy. This is what we do. So I've been in those places. And very often what it would be is you'd have a, a couple rooms of the house that looked really nice, but then there would be a back room or a basement or an attic, and usually they'd call you in because things were starting to spill over. But you know what? The second you walked in those houses, you could smell it. Not that it like smelled rotten. It's a smell that's, I mean, Jacob and, and Zach will tell you, it's not like anything else. It's like your, your instincts are going, there's something not good in here. You shouldn't be in here. But we're there because that's, you know, no one else was going to do it. So that's what we did. But that's what it's like when you have parts of your house, your life, that you want to wall off from Jesus. It's going to start to smell. And it might not even be so odious to everybody around you. But there's just going to be something not right as people encounter you. And well, I've let Jesus into my house. Everywhere? Well, I mean, not the junk drawer. Everybody's got a junk drawer, right, with ketchup packets and bags from Walmart and everything. And, you know, a bunch of ballpoint pens shoved away and... That's where you left your driver's license, and you have to look in there. You can't have that with Christ. Parts that you can't touch. Because those are the parts that are going to start to cause problems. But you can't have that, because if he changes that, that means I have to change this, and I refuse. We're right back to refusal to get out of the boat and leave it. But man, once you let Jesus into everywhere, I'd say every miraculous and wonderful encounter I've had with Jesus has been me letting him have access to a little bit more of my life. This attitude, this way of thinking about myself, this behavior, this habit, this hobby. Jesus, you can have it. Boom. It's like having an encounter with the power of Jesus. And this can range from all manner of things. It can be healing. There have been healings in this room. Too many to count, really. To provision. The Lord, you can have it. Haven't you ever been in a place where you needed something and it just, you pass the deadline and then your heart's broken and you cry out to God and then all of a sudden he just takes care of it. Amen. Haven't you ever been dealing with fear, stress, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, sorrow of the spirit, but there's a refusal to give it over to the Lord? Because if I just say th that I trust the Lord, that's minimizing my problems. I don't know why we think that way. But the minute you give it over, it's peace and it's joy. Maybe it was the day you got saved. You had an encounter with Jesus. Maybe there was a day that you were at a summer camp or a retreat and you had an encounter with Jesus. Maybe the day you were filled with the Spirit and first spoke in tongues, you had an encounter with Jesus. It could have just been during the worship service right now when you encounter the person of God, the Spirit of Christ, not just the written word of Christ. Because, friends, once you've had an encounter with Christ, you're never the same. You get up and you start serving. And it ripples out to those around you. You invite somebody else to come and encounter Christ and touch Jesus. And the process starts all over again. Verse 32. That evening at sundown. Why sundown? Because they're waiting for the Sabbath day to be over. They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this is still the first day of ministry that we have described. Starting out, going to synagogue, shocking everybody with your preaching, casting out a quick demon before you go home for lunch, healing the mother-in-law who had a fever. Sun goes down the minute we're allowed to go out of the house. Now everybody shows up with all of those that are sick or demonized. And there's Jesus healing everyone. Don't get tripped up by the fact it says that they brought them all and he healed many. It's not saying that he didn't heal everybody that came. 
thing. They brought everybody. And on that day, Jesus healed many diseases and many demons. Don't, don't get to the, something that, oh, Jesus helps almost everybody that comes. No, the idea is that everybody that came to Jesus received a touch from Jesus. They flood Peter's house. And this would have been a long night of him healing people, casting out demons, and then enforcing that messianic secret, not letting the demons announce who he was. Why? Well, probably because he didn't want that kind of publicity to start with. But secondly, because the time had not come yet. If you're here and you doubt that leaving everything to follow Jesus and inviting him into your house and having an encounter with him can transform your life, I invite you to look at the great number of people that have already done this and encountered him already. Hebrews 12 talks about this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some of us need endurance. There's no secret. You've just got to keep going. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You doubt the power of Christ? The sheer number of testimonies of those who met Jesus is overwhelming. How about John Newton, the slave ship captain, who became a pastor and a disciple of a man named William Wilberforce? And, today, and in that day, together, after the transforming work that Christ did, they outlawed the slave trade that he had participated in. Who would have ever thought that? Who would ever have looked up at this man captaining that ship and thought, that's going to be the one who brings an end to all of this? How about C.T. Studd? You know who that was? C.T. Studd was a rich man in England. He was a cricket player, one of the best in the world, and everybody expected him to go on to do great things. And instead, he and his wife left and became missionaries in China and then later on to the Congo, ministering to cannibals in the middle of the jungle. And people would say things like, what a waste. But he didn't see it that way. He's the one. You probably heard this quote, but C.T. Studd is the one who said, just one life, twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. How about Nikki Cruz? You know that story? Cross and the switchblade. God calls David Wilkerson, a skinny country boy, to New York City to start preaching the gospel there. He preaches the gospel to this gangbanger named Nicky Cruz, who became a worldwide evangelist. Or we're going to look at Calvary Chapel's family. How about Raul Reese, pastor in Calvary Chapel Golden Springs, Diamond Bar, California. Came back from Vietnam with post-traumatic stress disorder, violent man, angry man, and a dangerous man, because not only had he been a soldier, he was a master uh, kung fu martial artist, beating on his wife beating on his children. They left the house. He was so angry that they had gone to church without his permission. He took his shotgun and was waiting for them to walk through the door and he was going to kill his family and then kill himself. While he's waiting, he turns on the television and he sees Pastor Chuck Smith on the Catherine Kuhlman show and he got saved listening to that testimony. And to this day, he's pastoring a church. When I go out to the, the conferences in California, I go to his church. Or how about our friend Nandagiri, the Nepali man who was trained to be a Hindu priest left that to become a communist revolutionary, got shot, left that life, found Jesus, and now he's a different kind of revolutionary altogether, bringing together the first generation of real Christianity in Nepal, in Nepal that that country had ever seen. There's no shortage of evidence. I could go on. We could go around the room and tell our stories until it was way past our bedtime, telling what Christ had done for us. The touch of Jesus, the word of Jesus, this is real. This is real. This is not, if I could just, if I could tell everybody one thing and to know one thing, it's not just a system of belief. It's not just philosophy. It's not just a social structure. This is real. Well, what makes you think your religion is better than anyone else's? Because it's true. Well, I know it helps you to say, no, it doesn't. There, no, false things don't help people. False things ruin lives, but the truth will set you free. So my call to you tonight is the same call that Jesus made to the fishermen. Come and follow him. Not me, not this, not us, not even the book. Follow him. I've told you before, this is what grieves me about so much public Christianity these days. No one's talking about Jesus. 
I love that they're talking about his word. I love that his commandments are being raised up. I love that his Bible is being read. But you can miss him. The message that will change people's minds is not logical arguments deduced from Scripture. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. So number one, leave your nets. Might not be your net, but leave something. Abraham left his homeland. Elisha left his plow. You know that story? Elijah showed up and said, time to go. We're leaving right now. He says, I got to go right now. All right. He took the plow of the 12 oxen that had been driving the plow ahead of him. He chopped up the plow, sacrificed the oxen and left. He left it all behind. The woman at the well left her water pot. She left that old life that was represented by sexual immorality and heartache. So what if your life needs to die in order to fully obey Christ? You probably know what it is. Even if you're mad at me right now, he probably wants me to stop doing, yeah, probably. You know why? Because I didn't say anything. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? Well, as they say, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yips is the one that got hit. So the part of your life that's going, yeah, yeah, I don't like this, is probably what's got to go. I'm not suggesting that you are demonized, don't understand me, misunderstand, but when the word of God gets spoken, the thing that begins to cry out and convulse is probably the thing that needs to be sent away. Leave your nets. Some of you in this room, I know from the Lord, have been told in no uncertain terms that something in your life needed to go and you haven't done it and you're wondering why things are not improving, why your, so to speak, mother-in-law is not being healed. Well, that's why. Because you're dragging around the nets and trying to follow Jesus. Number two, obey his word. Submit to the words that he says. Obey each and every one. This is why I'm so excited to get into this book because we're actually going to hear the words of Jesus and we get the opportunity to say, yes, Lord. Don't let there be any part of your life that says no to the authority of Jesus because Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one, love the other, or like the one and despise the other. And what that's either going to leave you with is being very, very unhappy in your Christian life, or you will begin to resent Jesus Christ for daring to tell you what to do. And this one area of your life that you think is not such a big deal will begin to infect every other area of your life. So now it's not just, I don't want to do this thing Jesus said. It becomes, how dare Jesus tell me anything? Obey his word. There's no such thing as no Lord. (laughs) No master. Excuse me? Well, yes, you are my master and my Lord. Hallelujah. But no. That just makes you a liar, as John would say in his epistle. Number three. I want you to encounter his power. Bring those things in your life that are broken and sick and destitute and let Jesus put his healing hand upon them. Invite Jesus into your house and then watch him do his work. There are things in your life that are busted. The thing you need to do is invite God into that situation. Get your father involved. Tattle on Satan. Dad, do you see what he's done? I don't think God will help me. Oh, of course he will. Don't you know how good he is? He gave up his son for you. I have three, and I wouldn't give up any of them for you. I've got extras, and you can't have one. But he loved you so much, he gave up his only son for you. I'm telling you, there are some of you here tonight that things are broken and busted. Jesus wants to fix that tonight for you. Number four is I want you to be transformed. From a fisherman... To a fisher of men, Jesus wants to transform you, to redeem the best parts of you so that you can then bring his power to all the world. Do you see how this happens? Jesus calls Peter to be a fisher of men. Peter brings Jesus into his synagogue, and that man gets his demon cast out of him. Jesus bring, or Peter brings Jesus into his house, and his mother-in-law is healed. And she begins to serve. And now the whole city comes to Peter's house, and the whole city is transformed because Peter said, Yes, Lord. And now he's no longer just a fisherman. He is fishing for men. And the same thing will be true for you. And very often the Lord takes who we think we are and removes all the parts that are covered by sin. And it might be very similar, but it's, it's not similar at all in another way. Leave your nets, obey his word, encounter his power and be transformed. You can't just start with step four. Well, yeah, get, be changed, and then eventually, you know, we'll get around to obeying him. No, it doesn't work that way. We're going to watch Jesus send people away. 
who'll come to him and say, Lord, I'll follow you, but he goes, well, go home until you're ready. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not good church growth policy. <laughs> Somebody wants to come, you've got to say yes. Jesus goes, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. If the town rejects me, I'll shake the dust off my sandals and move on to the next one. Jesus, that's so harsh. What do you know of harsh? Jesus teaches you what is harsh and what is kind. And the truth is divisive. It starts with leaving your nets, obeying his word, doing what he says, encountering his power, and being transformed. This is biblical Christianity. I've been told, Zach, I think I was talking to Zach, might have been Catlin the other day, where I said, I don't even love using the term Christianity much anymore. Not that I have a problem with it, don't understand, misunderstand, but the way that it is used is, Im is implying that you can take the tenets of Christianity separated from the truth of who Jesus is. I would rather say, I follow Jesus. What is a Christian? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe he was the son of God who died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is coming back to redeem all his people. And if you put your faith in him and serve him with your whole life, you will be saved and have eternal life. And all the discussions of Christianity, how is that ever left out? That's the whole thing. Well, I want you to come on the podcast. I want you to talk about your faith, but you know, just, just the moral side of it. Sorry, buddy, I can't. Because I'm not preaching a moral system. I'm preaching devotion to a man named Jesus. It's largely unknown, even in so many churches, that this kind of discipleship is scoffed at as radical. It's a young, okay, you're young, you'll grow up out of that. No, what they mean by that is you'll get bitter and you'll fall in love with the things of the world and be materialistic like the rest of us. Don't worry, time will tell. No, this is what Jesus did. This is what we need to know. This is what Birmingham, Alabama needs to know. It is not enough to go to church. What does that do for you? It might make things harder for you on Judgment Day because you're going to have heard it and rejected it. It's not enough to tithe, Lord help us. I give money to the church as if the kingdom of heaven could be bought with money. Well, I, I vote the right way or I have the right morals or I homeschool my children or any number of things that can be wonderful in their place. But what are they going to do for you when you stand before God? Well, why do you always think I'm like that? Because that's how Jesus taught us to think. It's following Jesus, leaving your nets. Seems as if modern day religion is hold on to as many of your nets as you can. Obey the parts of the word that you agree with. Take or leave the power of God and then be transformed. And then people are not transformed and they say, things. I guess there's nothing in this religion after all. You didn't try, friend. I don't know what you were doing, but it's not following Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did. And we are followers of Christ. I have determined to follow Jesus and nothing is left for myself. We all must follow the Lord together. Because if we want to see that change, we want to see those encounters, we want to see lives turned around, it starts with leaving your nets and listening to the voice of the one who has authority to command us.